Good morning, everyone. Yeah. What a great testimony, eh? That, that, that was amazing. And uh, Chris, thank you for putting that together for us. That's the work he does here. Uh, that happened at the College and Career Retreat. That was a couple of weeks ago. And, and we love to hear people's stories. So that, that's really, really good. So uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Leighton, and I serve on the staff team here. And uh, whether you're here in person or you're watching us online, I just want to say that we're glad that you joined us today. Um, I, I don't know if you can tell yet, but you're going to be able to tell that I'm struggling with a cold. And it is just a good old-fashioned cold. I've tested myself many, many times. Um, but it, it is capturing my voice, and so uh, hopefully I can make it to uh, today's, uh, today's sermon. But if you hear me getting a little bit raspy, uh, either pray for me if you're enjoying the sermon or pray that it continues if you're not, okay? Uh, I'll let you decide that, and may God convict you to pray the right way on that one. Okay, so uh, this morning, I want to begin my part with a, with a live uh, audience poll. So if you could please take out your, your phones right now if you have them with you. We do this from time to time. And uh, on the screen, you'll see a QR code or you'll see login information. And so if you can just uh, uh, log into that. If you're at home watching right now, you can also enter, enter this poll. And again, I want to just remind you, it's safe. You don't have to include any, any personal information. So, so you can just you know, freely enter in and it's easy to do. Now, as you're logging into this and getting set up, I just have a couple of quick additional announcements I want to make. Um, we had a, a couple of people from our, our church family uh, passed away this past week. And one is, is someone who is a dear saint, well-loved here. Her name is Mona Merritt. And, uh, I think she was even a charter member here at our church, and she passed away either uh, Wednesday night or the early hours of Thursday morning. And uh, her family wanted me to express to our family, especially to those who have supported and cared for Mona uh, ever since Ken passed away, which is about probably close to 10 years ago now. And uh, their family is away, and so many of our church family have been the ones that have been loving and caring for her. And, and so if that's you, and you know who you are, um, the family just wanted to say thank you very much for your care. They recognize that, and they deeply appreciate it. Now, uh, they've decided to only have a graveside service for Mona. And that's going to be on Thursday morning at 11 o'clock at Woodlawn Cemetery. And so if you want to join us, the family says you're welcome to do that. And you can just meet us at Woodlawn and at the entryway, and then we'll go to, the, to where the, the graveside is going to be. Uh, the second person that passed away is not as well known to us because she, they've been away for a while. She's had some uh, immunocompromisations. And so she lost her battle. Her name is Marilyn Stair. And Marilyn lost her battle with cancer on Thursday evening. And, and once again, the, the church family has chosen, or the family has chosen just a graveside service, and that's going to be on Friday afternoon. And if you know Marilyn and want to support Lionel and her family, then just call the office. All the details aren't determined yet, so we'll let you know what that is so you can be part of that. Okay, so now you should be logged into our, our poll. And so this morning, I want to uh, do a poll to discover what good leadership and what bad leadership looks like in families, in schools, in sports, in the workplace. And so I want you to answer this question and, and think, you know, put like a parent in mind, maybe yourself, or put a teacher in mind, or put a coach in mind, or put a boss in mind as you answer these questions. Okay, so here's, here's the first question. And we, we talk about this. So it says, uh, a good leader, bad leader. Someone who clearly defines 
and regularly articulates boundaries and expectations, including rewards for good behavior and consequences for bad behavior. So they have good, clear, honest communication. Okay, and we'll just see how things are going there. Okay, so uh, it's a little bit overwhelming there, and I think that's a trend. Second question now. <clears throat> good parent, or good leader, bad leader. Uh, consistently overreacts and is quick to pass judgment on others, often treating those un under them harshly and unfairly. So they're impatient and unfair. So good leader, bad leader. Okay, so consensus right there. Okay, uh, number three. Uh, carefully weighs their words, always saying what they mean and meaning what they say. So, so they never exaggerate. They're not ambiguous in what they do. Okay? And we see there's some consistency there. Fourth question. <clears throat> Consistently follows through by doing what they say they're going to do. So, for example, if they're a coach of a sports team and they have a, a curfew and they enforce the curfew until their star player breaks it, uh, that would be the inconsistency there. So, consistently follows through. Good leader, bad leader. Okay, and then the last one, um, or second last one, gives people a chance to redeem themselves when a mistake is made. Uh, good leader, bad leader. So, they're patient and compassionate. And then, one bonus question, and it's this. Oh, where's the picture? Oh, yeah. Trains up a child in the way he should go, so when he is old, he will not depart from it. Uh, if you don't know, that's my son and my grandson, Luca, wearing his first Oiler jersey. Uh, good parent, great parent. You can, you can decide right, right there. Okay, so it seems like it's a, a tie. Okay. So, so no big surprise, but there was a lot of consistency with what you responded as the audience. <laughs> now, what I want you to do is I want you just to, we're just gonna park the results of that survey for just a second, and I'm gonna refer back to that later on in the sermon. Okay, now this morning, we're gonna be concluding our Return of the King mini-series through the Book of Joel. And, and for the sake of those who are new to us, or for those that might have missed the sermon along the way, let me just do a quick flyover of the book so that we're all on the same page and we're all brought up to speed, okay? So the book of Joel opens with these words. Uh, he says, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything ever happened that has happened? Has anything like this ever happened in your day or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. You see, what the prophet Joel was referring to here was a catastrophic event of biblical proportions that had just taken place. And wave after wave of locusts had invaded their land completely and utterly destroying everything in their path so that the land and, in fact, the people were, were completely devastated. And the, the message from God that Joel delivered to the people was that this trouble was not a natural disaster. It was sent by God because of their disobedience and rebellion. It was, it was a mini judgment day of the Lord. And he tells the people first to lament and then to mourn and grieve and despair over their situation. And then second, he, he calls them to, to repentance. And he says this in verse 14. He says, declare a holy fast. 
Call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord and cry out to the Lord. And then in the next chapter, uh, which is, it's really a continuation of the trouble that they find themselves in in the opening words. And it opens with, with these words. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on, the holy, on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And this is the second day of the Lord that he mentions. It's close at hand. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. And with these words, God, through the prophet of Joel, warned the people of Judah of a second day of a Lord that was coming. And this time an invading army sent by God was on its way because of Judah's rebellious ways and sinful practices. And Joel was sent to warn the people that this day of the Lord was going to be even worse than the first day of the Lord. And the coming army was going to completely overtake and destroy Judah, just like the locusts had done. But although this day was imminent, God also wanted them to know that it was preventable. And listen to what he says in, in verse 12 of chapter 2. This is God speaking. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And the people of Judah heeded this warning, and they blew the trumpet, and they declared a holy fast, and they called a sacred assembly, and they all gathered together. It says that, that those with newborns gathered, those that were just married gathered, they all gathered together to cry out to the Lord in repentance. And what we discover in the second half of chapter 2 that follows is that God's mercy and love is more powerful than his wrath and judgment. It's a, it's a beautiful picture that God's mercy and love is more powerful than his wrath and judgment. You see, God heard their prayers. He saw, saw their rendered hearts, and he joyfully and, and passionately responded with mercy and love, saying this in, in verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. And as Pastor Wes so powerfully taught us last week, the God who responds responded in three miraculous ways. First, he repelled the attacking army, and he rescued his children from the imminent and devastating invasion that was coming upon them. The second thing he did is he, he restored their land. And in fact, he even restored all that was lost in the years of drought and the invading locusts because uh, the people had repented and returned to him. And the third thing that he did is, is he returned to them. And it says that he resided with, resided with them once again. Verse 27 says this, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. In fact, his promise uh, uh, was to describe a, a future day where he would pour out his spirit on all flesh, so that the sons and daughters of, of, the, of them would prophesy, and old men would dream dreams again, and young men would see visions. And Pastor West talked about that beautiful picture, and in fact, that very prophecy 
was declared fulfilled by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon his children in a visible and a miraculous and powerful and permanent way. And in fact, the whole entire last half of chapter 2 is this incredible picture of an amazing, loving, forgiving, and powerful God. And in the end of chapter 2 would have been just a beautiful and fitting way to end our series, except for one small but important detail. There's still another chapter. And the subtitle for the chapter in my Bible simply says this, the Lord judges the nations. In this last chapter, Joel describes a future day and, and a future and final day of the Lord where God is going to gather and then judge all the nations of the world. Now just listen to the opening words in chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Now let me just, just pause here and, and, and paint a picture of what's going to take place. God is going to gather all the nations and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, where's that valley, you might ask? Well, it, it, it's actually not a place on a map. Uh, it's, it's just a name. And, uh, and the only time that the valley of Jehoshaphat is mentioned is right here in Joel chapter 3. But most scholars believe uh, that um, the significance of the location is not important. It's actually the name that's important. And the name Jehoshaphat means God has judged. So when God uh, says, I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, he is saying, I will bring them to the place of judgment and enter into judgment with all people there. But the picture is still of a valley with vast multitudes of people crammed into one space and God himself visibly present, entering into the judgment with the nations. Now, I brought a picture. My wife and I uh, had the privilege of, of going to Israel a few years ago. And, and this is a, a picture of me standing on the top of Mount Carmel in Israel. And, and this is a significant place for a few reasons. It, it's the place where Elijah took on the prophets of Baal in this epic showdown. And most of you probably know, know that story. But, but uh, it's also significant for some other reasons. Below me, and if you can just go, yeah, as, as far as you can see is this vast valley called the Megiddo Valley. And some of you might know it better as the Valley of Armageddon. And it's the place where the final conflict of the nations is going to take place. Now, you, you can't see this in the picture, but if you were standing on, the, on, on uh, Mount Carmel, you could see this off in the distance are the mountains of Nazareth where, where Jesus was raised. And it, and it, it paints this wonderful picture where, where um, he judged his people, the nation of Israel, on Mount Carmel. And then on the other side of the valley, uh, he raised up a, a leader, an eternal leader, who was going to judge sin and death and hell. And then in the valley below, on a future day, the nations are going to gather against God and he's going to judge the nations. And this is going to be a, 
um, a, an awful time. There are numerous passages of Scripture that describe this judgment. And I'm going to just read one of them found in Isaiah chapter 13, but there are a number of, of, of pictures in this. And just listen to this now as we read it. The sound of a tumult is, is heard on the mountains as, a great, as of, a, of a great multitude and the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for the battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. A destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will, will melt. They'll be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at, e at one another, and their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the, star, for, for the stars of the heavens in the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And I will punish the world for its evil and all the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogance and I will lay the pompous pride of the ruthless. Now, it's a pretty vivid picture uh, of what's to come. And there are other passages, including Joel 3, that talk about this. It, it's terrifying. It's a sobering picture of God's wrath being poured out against the nations of the world who oppose him. And, and Joel, in, back in our passage in, in chapter 3, verses 3 to 9, he describes some of the great evils that were done against God's people. He names names and names nations, all of which, by the way, were, were still known to God on that final day of judgment. So in other words, God has not forgotten the wrongs that have been committed against the, his people. It says, um, they, meaning the nations, have scattered them, meaning God's people among the nations, and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have, and, and have drunk it. Now, I don't know if you're catching this, but you know what this is describing? It's describing the human trafficking of children for sexual, sexuality. Can you imagine anything more awful and heinous than this? Again, God's saying, I, I saw that, I'm gonna remember that. Then he names the, the specific nations. What are you to me, O Tyre or Sidon? in all the regions of Philistia. Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and, and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried me my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. And I will sell your sons and daughters into the land of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. 
Again, in these verses, God confronts evil amongst, amongst the nations and turns their violence back on them. And it's a picture of God fulfilling his promise to wrong all the wrongs committed to his people and to restore his people. Now, let me just pause there for a second. I don't know if you, you remember this, the movie Princess Bride. And the grandpa's reading the story, and then he pauses and says, you're looking a little bit concerned, okay? So let me just pause for a second. Um, how are you feeling about the sermon so far? Um, you know, talking about God's uh, divine judgment is it, it, never something that people like doing or like hearing. Believe me, I'm, I'm well aware that this is not a popular topic, especially in the days in which we live. And I would have uh, loved to have given this topic to Pastor Will or someone else on staff to deal with. Um, you know, I doubt if I went into your homes, there would be verses posted on your fridge uh, in magnets, you know, of God's you know, coming wrath and judgment. I, I don't think that's there. And, and you're probably not going to go to Kennedy's parables this afternoon or on Monday and, and, and find a box of greeting cards featuring, you know, the top ten verses of God's judgment that you can send to your friends. Um, God's judgment is, is not something people want to talk about or hear sermons about. But here it is. And it's right in front of us. And to ignore it or minimize it would not be true to the text or honoring to the reasons God has chosen to include passages like this in his written word. But before we, we, we move on, I, I do want to, to try and reframe God's judgment by going back to the survey that I had you participate in earlier, right now, um, this morning. You see, we agreed that someone who consistently and clearly defines boundaries and communicates expectation, including rewards and consequences, is a good leader, as a parent, teacher, coach, and boss. But isn't that also what God has done consistently and clearly throughout all humanity and time? We agreed that a leader who is patient and understanding and does not overreact or quickly pass judgment is a great leader, a parent, teacher, coach, and boss. But isn't that exactly who God is? Gracious and compassionate, slow to get angry, rich in love, good to all, and having compassion in all that he has made. We agreed that a leader who carefully weighs their words, saying what they mean and meaning what they say without exaggeration or ambiguity is a good parent, teacher, coach, and boss. Again, isn't this the exact picture of God? Everything he says is true, and everything he says he means. We agree that a good leader, good leaders are patient and compassionate. They give those below them the opportunity to redeem themselves when they make a mistake. And isn't that what God has done consistently time and time again throughout history for the world and for us? It says in 1 Peter 2, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And we agreed that a leader who follows through and does what they say they're going to do is a great parent, teacher, coach, and boss. And isn't this exactly what God is doing? He is following through on his judgments, and he's being true to who he says he is, a holy God. And yet, oddly, when, when, when God does these things, 
that we say a good coach does, a good parent does, a good teacher does, a good boss does, we say he's heavy-handed, he's mean, he's unfair, he's harsh, he's unloving, he's a vengeful, wrathful God. Right? You've heard those sayings. That's why people don't like to talk about God's judgment very often. But he's being true to the promise he made to make all things right. And he is being true to his character, that of a holy God. And he's being true to his word that he's going to restore all that was lost in the fall. So let's go back to our text and let's read on here. Verses 9 to 15, and I'm going to read it and then I'll just comment on it. He says, uh, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. By the way, that's the opposite to another verse in Scripture in Isaiah. And let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and, and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the, all the surrounding nations. Put the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, shred, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for the evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Now here's the picture Joel is painting. Vast crowds beyond any number imaginable to us have gathered in the valley. I, th I think the valley of Armageddon. And they, they have come armed for battle with, with all the strength and all the resources they have, including forging tools of agriculture into weapons of war. And, and the strongest, the weakest are there saying, I'm ready to battle. And with every ounce of firepower they can muster up, they're, they're there to battle the God of Israel. All humanity against one God. But of course, this is not a fair battle. I don't know if you noticed the words. God doesn't even stand up. He, he just sits there as judge over these people. And this is, not, this is not a fair battle because no weapon has been made in the past or will ever be invented that can make the smallest impression against the God of the universe. Verse 16 says this, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of, of Israel. And the sun and the moon, it says in the passage, are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. And the voice of the Lord commands, shouts a command. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Now, I mentioned the Battle of Armageddon earlier. But don't imagine for a second, this is a battle. God, with one command, cuts down those that oppose him, like a sickle cuts down 
grain that is ready to be harvested. And in, in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, this is what it says, that the Lord overthrows his enemies by the breath of his mouth. Just by the breath of his mouth, he overthrows his enemies and the splendor of his coming. And then it says uh, in Malachi, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he, when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. This was a fight they could not win. Even though they gathered all the warriors, their warriors, and mustered up every weapon they could. And nor is it a fight that you and I can win. You see, our sin and our unholiness and our rebellion deserves the same fate. But thankfully, it says in the scripture in the last part of verse 16, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And in the valley of decision that Joel speaks about, people are not making decisions about God at that moment. God is making a decision about them. And when, and when, uh, when we are God's, he, he justifies us. In other words, he makes a decision in our favor not to hold our sin against us. And that's just this beautiful contrast to this passage. What is judgment for some is salvation for others. And this is what it says in the last verses of chapter 3. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and the strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall, shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall uh, flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and the water from the valley of Shittim. And Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, and the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. I will avenge the blood, their blood. I have not avenged for the Lord, I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. And, and the Lord, what's happening here? I don't know if, you, if you're understanding this, is, that, is the Lord is returning uh, his creation to its original status. And, and, and there, he's talking about a time when, when there's not going to be any more sin or any more pain or any more brokenness, where, where God is going to reside with his people forever and ever and us with him. And he's going to reign as our, as our king. And so it, as difficult as it is for us to think about a future day when God judges the nation. God's judgment is, is unavoidable, and it's actually necessary. And it's good for us to ponder it, even though last week's sermon would have been a better sermon to end on. And, and even though uh, it's, it's, it's a sobering and heart-wrenching and terrifying subject. And I want to just give you just a, a few reasons why it's good for us to hear a sermon like this today and for us to talk about God's judgment. First of all, uh, God's judgment teaches us more about who he is. 
You know, some aspects of God's character are only revealed or best revealed through his judgment. Last week, uh, Wes, I meant to put this in the PowerPoint, but I forgot, but Wes's final PowerPoint slide said this. God rescues his people, restores their land, and resides with them, pouring out his spirit upon them because that is who he is. God rescues, restores, and resides because that's who he is. But he, also, uh, but he is also the God who judges because that is who he is. And, and we see this judgment and this, this salvation working hand in hand throughout Scripture. From the first chapters of Genesis to the last chapters of Revelation, we learn that God keeps his word and that he punishes sin. And he does this because he is holy and because he desires to restore humanity's broken relationship with him. God's judgment shows us his hate for sin, but it also reveals God's grace. In the story of the flood, we see God judging the world for its sinful ways. But we also see God commanding someone to build an ark to save humanity that wants to be saved and to save the animals. In the story of Abraham, we see God judging the nations around him and at the same time making a covenant with Abraham to form a new nation that would honor him. In the days of Moses, we see that God put together a sacrificial system so that the people could walk in, in wholeness with their God. And in the days of Jesus, we see the cross that helps us understand that we can have a right relationship with God. And even now, with a, with a cross, the empty cross, front and center in our lives, we also have the Holy Spirit, the God who, who resides in us permanently, never to leave us when we invite him in. And he continues to do his good work in our lives to change us. And the same Holy Spirit is actively working in the world, trying to draw people to the Father, the truth of who he is. And so we have all these things. And even when the world chooses to ignore God and go its own way, God in his mercy preserves a remnant who will stay true to him. We see that he is good and merciful and righteous and gracious and holy when we see his judgment. Second, God's judgment not only shows us the consequences for sin, but it shows us God's mercy because it points us to our need for him. You know, God's warning against judgment points us in the right direction. Just like it pointed uh, that the people in, in Joel's day to the right direction. They, they knew that the, the day of the Lord was imminent, but it was avoidable. And so is the future day of the Lord imminent, but it is avoidable. And it helps us understand what we should do. God's desire desires good for us. And his word shows us how we are to walk in his ways and the consequences we'll avoid when we follow him. Third, and this is connected, uh, God's judgment points us to Jesus. Our, our mission statement is we point people to Jesus because we believe he's the way and the truth and the life. And the whole reason Jesus came to earth was to glorify God by taking upon 
himself the judgment that we deserve. And that's actually the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus paid for us what we could not pay for ourselves. Fourth, God's judgment fills his children with, with hope. And it proves that to us that one day he will make all things right. And maybe you're sitting in a day right now when, when things aren't right for you, where, where your life is filled with injustices and you think that life is unfair or that people are treating you unfairly or this wrong has happened to you. And God is reminding you in his judgment this future day that, that one day all injustices will be paid for and our, our brokennesses our brokenness, uh, will, will be dealt with. In fact, it says that, that there's a bottle in heaven that gathers the tears of his people. And fifth and finally, God's judgment reminds us that one day he will reside with us forever and that we will never have to be apart from our God, but we will live for him in heaven and the new earth forever and ever. And that fills us with hope. Okay. You made it through a sermon on judgment. Well done. And you didn't leave. Even better for you. And my voice didn't act up. Even better for me. So that's a wrap. Okay. This little book of Joel. Three chapters. Profound message. And it, and it shows us how human sin and failure reap devastating destruction in our world, but also in the age to come for, for eternity for those who choose to continue to act in rebellious, rebellion towards him. It shows us how God longs to show his mercy to those who own up to their sin and confess it, and that he's a refuge for all who run to him. And it informs us that, that God will fulfill his promise to one day defeat evil in our world, as God described in this chapter, but not just in the world, in us. That God will, will, will take the evil in us and that he'll, he'll deal with that and he'll fulfill his promise to defeat the evil that we struggle with right now. And one day God will right all wrongs and restore all creation back to its original good. But his promise is to bring healing in our lives and to make us into a new creation setting aside the old ways and the old creation, creation and making us something new. The day of the Lord is coming. And on that day, we want to be found on the right side of him. We don't want to be lined up with the nations in between in that battle because it'll be no match and we will reap what we have deserved. But for those who call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Even this morning, even this morning, you can call on the name of the Lord and he will save you. And then he will look with you in that value of decision and he will decide for you to enter his presence with him. It's a beautiful picture. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up as, as we close. And just as they're coming up, uh, next week, we're going to begin a new sermon series. It's going to be on the book of 1 Timothy. And we're calling the, the series How Things Work, based on, on that TV show. 
And uh, 1 Timothy, again, is, is, a, is a book that you're, you're capable of reading this week if you want to, just to get a sense of what's happening. And so we're going to start 1 Timothy uh, next week. And I, I hope that this, um, this sermon series here has been timely for us. Last week, we, we gathered, we called a sacred assembly, and we gathered together to worship God and to pray. And it was, it was a great time. But this has to be not just our one-time posture, but our, our, our ongoing posture, that we will gather to pray. Will, we will ask the Lord to reveal in us what we need to deal with so that we can walk with Him. And even this morning, we're going to have the altars open as we sing this last song. And if you want to be prayed for, come and, and confess your sin before the Lord, make things right with someone, this would be a great time to do that. So I invite you just to stand with us as we close. And again, uh, you can pray, you can worship, you can come to the front, and we'll have people there to pray as well. Revelation chapter 5 says this, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. And so as you go from here, um, go with the presence of God in you. And may the peace of God overwhelm you. And may the Holy Spirit be active in your life. Amen? Amen. Thanks for being with us today.